0: It's hard to remember that Joseph is only 17 years old. Joseph is only 17 years old when all of this event begins to happen, when all of this narrative unfolds. Here's Joseph. He's one of 12 sons and a daughter. Uh, He has a sister as well, but one of 12 sons, and he's almost the youngest. There's one younger than him and so 17 years old and what the text tells us repeatedly is that Joseph is treated differently that Joseph rather than being out there with his older brothers tending the flock they're out there taking care of things Joseph seems to be back at home with Jacob and we're told specifically that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other sons because he was the son of his old age we're also told that then jo- Jacob makes Joseph a very special robe. We don't know much about the robe. Uh, scholars try to figure out that word is a really unusual word. The only thing that we know is it's used only two other places and that's over in 2 Samuel 13 and when it's used there it's used in terms of a royal robe. And so the idea seems to be Jacob gave Joseph a robe that really set him apart from everybody else. He's wearing this special robe, which consider wearing a long-sleeve robe down to your ankles is not conducive to doing work in the yard. It's not conducive to taking care of sheep and goats and doing hard labor on the outside. He's been set apart. He's set as special. And you know what all the brothers say? They hate him. The text is very clear. It says in verse 4, They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They can't stand the guy. And they can't even say anything nice to him. And then suddenly, Joseph has a dream. And in this dream, he sees sheep. And his sheave is standing up. And the 11 other sheaves are bowing down to his sheave. And the brothers recognize the interpretation and say, Are we to serve you? Are we to bow down to you? You're almost the youngest. Are you suggesting that we are going to be bowing down to you? That you are going to rule over us? Verse 8, So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph has a second dream. In this dream, you have sun, moon, and eleven stars, and they now are all gathering and bowing down to Joseph. Same message. And Jacob... Turns and rebukes his son. What is this that you're telling us? What are you trying to say here, Joseph? And the reason why this is a difficulty is their world and time is different than ours. If you and I start having strange dreams, we usually will start figuring out I had coffee too late last night. The dinner didn't sit very well. That's why all these dreams are going on and I need to really reconsider what I'm doing in my evenings. But that's not the way things worked then. It was generally understood in ancient Near Eastern times that that was a message of God. And we know from the Scriptures that before the law of Moses, that this was a way that God communicated to His people was through visions and dreams. And what Joseph is doing is not saying, boy, I had a real funny one last night. That one was really weird. Got some sheaves bowing down to me. Anybody understand it? Everybody understands the dream. But more importantly, what is being understood is that this is God's message. God is giving these dreams and God is saying this family is going to bow down to me and I am going to rule over you. And nobody likes that message. Nobody is happy with that. In fact, you'll see that in a moment as the story moves forward. In verse 12, you'll notice we're told it's another day. Yet again, Joseph is not with his brothers. The brothers are out there tending to the flock. They're out there in the fields. Joseph is back at home. And it seems that Joseph is designated messenger boy. We're told that Jacob again sends Joseph out to go find out what the brothers are doing. Now, the first time around, as I intentionally skipped over, he gave a bad report about what they were doing out there. I don't know if that was deserved or not. The text doesn't say. I don't know if these 10 older brothers are a bunch of jokers goofing off, you know, throwing the sheep around. I don't know what the problem is that Joseph keeps running back and saying your sons are doing terrible and here's the problem. But here comes Joseph now a second time and Jacob sent him. Joseph isn't doing this on his own. It's very clear in the, in the story that's told to us in verse 13 and 14. It says, go find out how they're doing. Go find out what they're doing. And so Joseph goes to find them where they usually are and they're not there. They're not where they usually are. And he has to ask around, have you seen 10 other guys with a bunch of animals? And somebody comes along and says, yeah, they went out over there even further away. And Joseph doesn't go home and go, you know what, that's really far. Forget about it. He goes. And he goes and finds his brothers. And notice what we are told then in verse 18. It says, They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. And that is the highlight of the problem right there. Oh, they see Joseph coming. They say, you know what? I don't like what this message is about him ruling over us. Let's get this dreamer and let's kill him and then we'll see how those dreams really come to fruition. Let's see if he's really going to rule over us when we go ahead and kill him and say a wild animal destroyed him. And what I want you to see as a beginning point of what is being set up for us in this story is that this is really a picture of the human condition. That God gives a message And the tendency of humanity is to rebel against that very message. God says, Joseph is going to rule over this family. And you are all going to be subservient to him one day. And all the brothers go, I don't like that message. And so let's see if he can do that after we kill him. That's their response. This isn't just Joseph having dreams of grandeur. This is God's declaration through the dream. He will be the one. And nobody in the family likes it. But that is the message of the scriptures over and over again. Does that not ring a bell of perhaps like Psalm 2? Where you have there David saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against His anointed saying, let us burst their bones apart and cast away their cords from us. Here is the psalmist saying, this is what people do. God says I'm going to do this and the world says no you're not we don't like that let's fight against God that's what people do so the psalmist identifies it Joseph's brothers are doing it and consider this is exactly the mockery of Christ on the cross oh you who said you can save others Save yourself. If you are who you say you are, if you are the son of God, come down off the cross. This is the human condition. God says, here's the way it's going to go. And we say, well, let's see if we can fight that system. Let's see if we can change that outcome. And what is, I think, the most shocking about what we see with Joseph what we see with Jesus, what we see always with what God is doing is that sin is blinding us to a critical reality. That sin is blinding us to our only hope. And we hate the one who has come to rule over us and save us. That's the irony of the situation. Nobody knows this at the moment. But the brothers are hating the one that is about to save their lives. They don't know that yet. And the world hates the one who came to rule over all people and save them. And we all go, no, don't like it. And the brothers go, no, we don't like it. And I just want us to get a sense of that human condition being displayed right here is God has decreed a particular outcome. And what we're going to see throughout the events of Joseph's life is everybody is going against that plan and decree. Everybody thinks they've got it figured out a better way. And nobody's willing to submit to the clear message that this is the one. And this is how it's all going to unfold with Joseph. So they say, let's kill him. Reuben... Thankfully intervenes at the moment. Reuben in verse 21 says, let's not kill him. Instead, let's throw him in a pit over here in the desert and don't lay a hand on him. And then you get this great little inference statement here in the end of verse 22, so that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to the father. Now, Reuben might be noble, we don't know. But it is interesting, just a couple of chapters earlier, Reuben has committed a, a horrible sin against his father and has slept with his concubine and is on the out severely then and is greatly condemned by Jacob. This presents itself as an opportunity to redeem himself to his father. Don't kill him. Put him in a pit over there. And the story goes, and by the way, Reuben's thinking, I will restore him and bring him back to the father. Hi, I saved your son. We all okay? (laughs) So that's what's going on in Reuben's mind. They agree. They throw him in the pit. Verse 23, strip him of this robe. You're not special. We don't care about you. You are not set apart in the slightest. Strip the robe from him that he wore. Verse 24, it says, they took him and they threw him into the pit and the pit was empty. It was without water. Don't misread that like I did all my childhood. The point is not to say, poor Joseph, he was down there thirsty. This is actually God's movement of grace happening to Joseph right now. Number one, rather than them killing him as soon as he approaches, Reuben says, let's not kill him yet. Let's throw him in the pit. They're not just random pits running around the desert out there. These are cisterns. And God has now overseen this so that he doesn't go into a cistern that's 20 feet deep of water. The cistern's dry. And there he sits. And it's a statement of blessing, not a statement of negativity for Joseph. That he is fortunate that the pit that he's been tossed into does not have water over his head. And so there Joseph sits. And perhaps the most staggering words of all is the beginning of verse 25. And they sat down to eat. How cold-hearted do you have to be to do that? Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Boom, down the 20-foot pit he goes. And let's have lunch. All the day's work. I mean, are you kidding me? Even somebody I really, really disliked. I don't know that it would be like, now where's my uh, turkey sandwich? Let's all chill out now. As he sits down there screaming for his life, please let me out of here, I'm sorry. And they just sit there and eat their lunch, no big deal. That hatred. You see how the text is just pouring forth that hatred. That hatred that they have of this brother. They cannot stand him. They cannot speak kindly to him. They want him dead. And then something interesting happens. We don't know where Reuben went. But verse 25 says, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead now passes through. And the fourth eldest brother, Judah, goes, you know what? Killing them doesn't have a whole lot of tangible value. But we could sell him for money. Let's sell them as a slave to these Israelites that are coming in and we can get some profit out of this. And so that is exactly what they do. Verse 27 and his brothers listened to him, and then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph out and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. And then the scene slightly shifts because verse 29 says, "Reuben, now enacting his "I'm going to rescue my brother plan, goes to the pit, and it's empty. There's no Joseph in there. And Reuben tears his clothes and says, what have you guys done? What have you done? How are we going to be able to tell this to my father? How are we going to go back home? I mean, he is responsible as the oldest son for the well-being of the brothers as they're out here in the desert, miles away from home. And he says, what am I going to tell dad that you just got rid of one of them? Where is he? What happened? And so the plan is concocted. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And verse verse 32 is chilling to me. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found... Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. That sounds as emotionless as a cop coming to your door. Uh, we saw this jacket in a car accident. Please identify. That's, that's what they do. Um, you know, we just happened to pull this robe that's got blood all over it. Uh, please identify. Please identify. Is this your Not our brothers, your sons. Is this, is this your sons? Shocking callousness. Shockingly cold and uncaring. I know full well who it was. And even if they weren't the ones to do it, it wouldn't be like, oh boy... That's a real rarity. I wonder whose robe that is. Who do you think that robe is? Even if you had no hand in this matter whatsoever, of course it's the robe. And that's what Jacob says in the very next verse. It is my son's robe. And he draws the conclusion, a fierce animal has killed him and devoured him. And Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And the text is very interesting because it says Jacob could not be consoled. And perhaps this is a moving part of where the narrative will go. It's because it seems to me the text is saying the brothers are rather surprised at how badly Jacob takes this. He cannot be comforted at all. It doesn't matter what the ten older brothers do, he is not comforted and mourns and weeps and wails. And simply says in verse 35, No, I shall go down to Sheol with my son. Born. I will die in my tears. I will go to my grave in pain over this. And I don't think they expected that. And the narrative ends with a curious finale in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. And the text pushes pause right there as it turns its attention to another event before it comes back to Joseph again. And what I want to do is just observe two points with you that can help us to have grace to overcome through difficulty through trials, suffering, adversity. The first one I think that just jumps off the screen is that obedience does not guarantee success or ease. Because that's all Joseph has done in this chapter. He has been faithful to his father. He did what his father told him to do. His father had said, you go find out what they're doing and you tell me What they're doing and how it's going. You give me a report. Joseph's doing what dad told him to do. And it is, I think, useful to consider just because we do what we are told to do doesn't mean that everything is going to go okay. And more importantly, just because we do what God has told us to do doesn't mean it's going to go okay. Remember, who is the one who has caused all this? God is the one giving him the dreams that has brought this now to a head. They hated him as it was because of the robe and because he's giving bad reports and he's not sugarcoating it and saying, oh, they're doing fine when they're not. He's telling the truth. But God gives Joseph dreams that pushes it to the point where the brothers are now going to do something about it. I think it's important for us to recognize and see that faithfulness to God and faithfulness of what we are supposed to do will bring suffering to our lives. I feel like we live in a really strange religious time right now that continues to either suggest, imply, and even frequently overtly state... That if you will be faithful to God, your life will go well. If you will be faithful to God, everything will be just fine. It is the message of the three friends of Job. Well, if things are off course, you must have done something wrong. And if you would just repent, everything would be better. And that is never in the life of Joseph. For all that he's going to go through in these chapters that we read, that is never the truth of the matter. Joseph has been faithful and there is nothing that we can put our finger on and go, well, this happened because he was doing something wrong. He's paying the consequences for something. Absolutely not. The point is often that God's plan is not for our comfort and for our convenience. We have this strange idea that, well, God wants me to have things easy right now. God wants my life to be simple and uncomplicated and happy and good. Really? Because Joseph doesn't stand that test. God comes in and completely wrecks Joseph's life. That's why i called this when God, quote, ruins your life. Do you think this was in the life plan of Joseph? Here he is, 17 years old. Here's his whole life ahead of him of what he's going to do. Here's what he plans to be, and he's the favored son. So life is going to be pretty good at home because dad loves him. We got doing pretty good. There's 70 of us here. It's a nice family situation in Canaan. Do you think that his life plan was for the next 13 years I'm going to go hang out in Egypt as a slave? We come along to God and go, well, if there's really a God, He's going to want to make me happy. And He's going to do all these things in my life to make it easy and take out all the obstacles and make it all good. And if God doesn't do what I want Him to do and make my life easy and give me the things that I pray for and help me how I want Him to help, then there's no God and I give up. And I'm mystified by this new spirituality that declares that of God. Because friends... I can't find one single person in the Scriptures that God upholds as faithful that He did not wreck their lives and do something. (coughs) Abraham. Abraham says, you know what? Ishmael. Ishmael will work. Ishmael will be the son. No, won't you send him to the desert? Okay. Okay, here's the promise. Okay, I want you to take him on an altar and kill him. What? God doesn't make our lives easy. Where did we ever read that? Every single person I read in this book goes through difficulties for the sake of serving their God. Because God's goal is not for us to have an easy life. God's goal is to bring Him glory and to bring us to glory. His goal is not for us to have three cars, a big house, a nice TV, and live comfortably in air conditioning wherever we like. And yet that is our service before God. If God doesn't give me that, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to church. That will show Him. Are you kidding? As if we have any room to barter before God. God is not in the interest of our comforts. God is not in the interest of our conveniences. And yet so often we play that before God. We will make decisions believing it is the will of God because, well, that's the easy thing for me. That would make me happy, so that must be God's will. And I never see that correlation in Scriptures. And yet we make massive life decisions not on the basis of what is good for the kingdom of God, what is right to bring God glory, or to improve our faith and spirituality are some decisions of life and for prayers. Well, what's going to make me happy? And we'll move there and do this and do that. And that'll be the decisions. I want you to see we don't learn that in the scriptures and Joseph stands directly against that idea. We don't see that that is how God operates. In fact, it seems that God intentionally messes up, if you will, our plans so that we can understand that we've got to become what He's called us to be. And unfortunately, a life of comfort and ease doesn't teach us much of anything except how to be spoiled Christian children before God. It is suffering, trial, difficulty. It is the putting our faith in the fire that challenges us and molds us and creates us and refines us into what we need to be. And this is what God is doing with Joseph at this moment. He has completely destroyed the life plans of Joseph completely wrecked everything that Joseph thought he was going to be doing. One of the most amazing things we'll see as we keep going through Joseph is Joseph doesn't go, well, I give up on God. I mean, that wasn't part of the plan. I'm out on God because He didn't do what I wanted. And we cannot do the same. Number one, obedience does not guarantee success or ease now. And God is not interested in you having the good life now. Number two, we cannot see how God is accomplishing His purposes. Would you put yourself in the shoes of Joseph for a moment? Joseph was told by God in these dreams, you will rule over your family. Sun, moon, 11 stars. The sheaves will all bow down to you. He is going to rule over them. And now the text ends with Joseph in slavery. In Egypt. How is God going to fulfill that dream? How is God going to accomplish His purpose that said Joseph will rule over his family when Joseph is not in Canaan, He's in Egypt and he's a slave. I love that the psalmist even tells us Joseph didn't know either. That's what Joseph wants to know. Psalm 105, verse 17. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until he had came to pass. The word of the Lord kept testing him. I love that phrase. The word of the Lord kept testing him. I think for 13 years, every day, I had a dream that God said I would rule over my family and I am a slave in Egypt. These two don't reconcile. And the psalmist says, the word of the Lord kept testing him. And I believe he's saying, every day Joseph is going, how's that going to work? How is that going to turn out? How is that going to be possible? And one of the amazing things that we see in the life of Joseph and we see in the life of the Scriptures is how frequently God will use the evil deeds of others to accomplish His purposes. As I prepared for this, I was blown away at that very thought of the frequency at which God uses evil deeds of other people. That God's saving victory seems to always come through suffering and through sin. The greatest illustration of this truth is in Jesus. The evil deeds of Judas, the evil deeds of the Jewish leaders, the evil deeds and rejection of Of Herod and Pilate. All of this is used by God to bring about one who will rule and save the world. That God has no problem taking the wickedness of others and accomplishing his will through that. And that should help when we don't understand is that God can take these awful, seemingly impossible, incomprehensible circumstances and still be accomplishing His purposes, even though it looks like everything has gone horribly off the rails. It looks like in Joseph's life, God took a vacation and everything just went completely wrong. When in fact, God is moving this through perfectly according to his plan. But Joseph doesn't see that. And Joseph at this moment doesn't know that. It's just the word of God keeps testing him. How will this be? And it is a reminder to us that we are not forgotten, that we are not forsaken that we are being tested as we wait for the Lord. That it is in vain that we rebel against the plans of God. That it is foolish on our part to suggest that God is not going to accomplish His will. That it is just ludicrous on our part to stand against God and think, My will is what matters. My plan for life is the way things ought to go. God is accomplishing His purposes. All things will be brought to His glory and for His good. And we must always remember through those steps of difficulty and pain, we are not forgotten by God and we are not forsaken by Him. You pull your song looks out we'll sing an invitation song and we invite you come to come to a merciful God who loves every single human And has made the ultimate sacrifice. Bringing his purposes together in Christ. So that we could have one who would rule over us and save us from our sins. And may we not reject those purposes of God. May we not rebel against what he is doing through his glorious Son. That our call is to turn away from our sins. To be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And then friends, to have faith in God. To believe in His purpose. That He is at work. And at the end, God will be shown vindicated and victorious. Our hope rides in that. Our hope rides in that reality, not in what we experience right here, right now. Become a child of God. Let Him be your Father to lead you through your difficulties, to be your place of hope and comfort, so that when the time comes... You will be able to hear that you are a child of God, to be a servant pleasing to the sight of God, to enter into the eternal rest. For that is the world and the life that matters most. Will you come to him? Won't you come now while we stand up